This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. Today we welcome Johannes Husak in our podcast, one of the co-founders of Kertus, a platform that automates data privacy operations. Always fascinated by technology, Johannes did his bachelor's and master's at Technical University of Munich in energy and process technology and went to an abroad semester at Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai. It was during his studies when one of his friends drew Johannes' attention to Manage and More, an entrepreneurial scholarship by Unternehmertum in Munich. At Manage and More, Johannes discovered his passion to build products and teams around them. Johannes spent more than three years at Moshes, a German research and development company where he worked as a tech executive for energy and innovation fields. At Moshes, he met the co-founders of the first venture Johannes founded, Aitaro, a machine learning consultancy for companies. And then the time for Kertas came. Together with Kilian Schmidt on the legal side and Alexander Prams on the technical side, he found a perfect match for Kertas. Over the course of the episode, we speak to Johannes about his experience of founding a company in the middle of pandemic, the story of how Kertas' founding team came to be, Johannes' take on the future of compliance industry and his personal advice on maintaining work-life balance. As always, at the end of the episode, you will hear Hannah's prompt answers and recommendations to our toolbox. First of all, thank you for coming. We really appreciate having you on. To kick off, we always like to ask our guests one question, which is, what is your favorite part of the city you're living in right now, which would, in your case, be Munich? The favorite part within the city or the surrounding count as well? Surrounding definitely counts as well. Yeah. Okay. But then it's like farther surrounding. So it's like definitely the mountains where it's like, like where it's quiet right now. So that would be favorite part at the moment. Seems like hiking and going to the mountains, one of your, one of your passions, right? It definitely is. Yes. But also let's talk about another passion of yours, which I think is connected to the background that you started. So you have a background in energy and process engineering. And I was just curious. Were you always an engineer by heart or is it something that you discovered at some point in your life? Tricky questions to start with. Honestly, I have to admit now looking back, I probably never was an engineer by heart. So I studied mechanical engineering or energy and process technologies, but I was originally fascinated from the whole energy system. Like, how is that working? Like, how is everything connected? Like, how can I plug into a fan or whatever? And it just works and a turbine needs to run somewhere a thousand kilometers away. So that fascinated me and that is basically why I choose this topic. However, it took me a few semesters to figure out that the mechanical engineering part, so modeling gears and dealing with material science and stuff like that is not the interesting part, but more the electrical side of things. So the whole system around it. And that was also the reason why I shifted more into electrical engineering, figuring out that also, especially the modeling of a system is interesting and then basically ending up more in the informatics part of, of everything. That is quite the journey around the different disciplines of engineering. And 
I guess to shift over to a slightly different portion of your education, at CDTM, we're always really interested to talk to people who did manage and more, which you participated in. So just to ask a question about that, how did you hear about manage and more? What encouraged you to apply? What did you feel like you learned from your experience? This question is connected to the previous answer that I gave. I shifted more to the informatics sides and wrote my master thesis with Siemens, corporate technologies, predicting future energy prices and modeling energy systems. And it happened that there was a student lunch and there were a lot of Siemens students also coming from the next 47. So they're kind of VC or uh, yeah, corporate venture arm. And I met a friend there and he told me that there's also another part in Munich, not only the corporate part with Siemens and BMW, but also a huge startup ecosystem, which I was not aware of, even though Unternehmertum is just next to the mechanical engineering faculty, but just my world back at that time ended there. So he told me about that. And I was then in this weird situation of like, do I want to make my parents proud and continue as an engineer at Siemens? Or do I want to go back to university? Because as you know, this is a student program and I was about to finish my student life. So I was in this kind of tricky situation, but experience with Siemens back at that time and the long processes, I decided to write the application, try my best and try to get a foot in the door in this whole startup ecosystem. Thanks to that one person that told me of that. And then obviously I applied for it. And I got it. And then I had to think about what kind of second study do I want to do because I had to be enrolled. So then like one thing added to the other, but this is, I think, consistent through my education itself that I just followed whatever interests me at that moment. So also coming from mechanical engineering to electrical engineering to informatics, and then basically continue that journey coming from big corporates, stepping into the whole startup world. Super, super interesting. Also, I think looking retrospectively, all the dots make sense, right? As Steve Jobs once said. And also like looking at one of the dots in, in your CV, so to say. I was also curious about your experience in Mumbai. So I think you did a semester abroad there. Can you tell us a bit more about how you decided to go there and what you learned during your experience? Yeah. I had my first semester break and I was, as a student, totally broke. However, I wanted to experience something cool and completely different from what I've seen so far. And a friend of mine and I, we just searched in the internet and found a flight back and forth to Mumbai for like 350 bucks or so. So that was something that would, we could afford. And also we had 150 more bucks. So this is enough to stay for two weeks in India. So we went there and it was like crazy for me to see everything there. And also back in that time, when I studied energy and process technology, I always wonder how will they ever overcome the whole energy issues that they having, like the cables and wires being everywhere, blackouts every day, electrification in the rural area did not really happen back at that time or like rarely happened. So I was really, really curious how this massive country will overcome these kind of issues. And basically at the end of the, of that trip, I decided that I want to dig deeper and want to gain more on how people were like live there and how they think about everything and how they want to move forward into the future. And a second part of your question, I guess, was what were the biggest learnings? And I think biggest learnings there, I didn't took too many of like academic learnings. I think that's pretty normal for like a semester abroad, I guess. However, the things that I learned there is like really to value all the privileges that I have here. I mean, like it's hundred percent accident that I was born in Munich and I'm born in Germany, close to Munich and that I have a good family. Everything was there. 
and I kind of could build up on and take risks like I did, not staying with Siemens, but going back to university and comparing that to the most of the people in India or other countries in the world, they have it way harder. And I think that was one big, big learning that I always like think back and at least try to value all the privileges that I'm currently having. I think that's a very thoughtful answer and I appreciate that. And I guess rounding out our discussion of your experience as a student, while you were a student, you worked at Moshis, which is I think the first time you and Yulia met. And we've mentioned an interest in problem solving before. And I just wanted to note that you held a variety of different positions within Moshis. And so I was just wondering how your journey evolved with that and what you would say your biggest learnings were from working with Moshis. So when I applied for manager more, I met one of the co-founders and before that, and he also like highly recommended me to apply for the entrepreneurial program. So after I got accepted, I wrote an in quotation mark application to Moshe or specifically to that one founder and wrote him that instead of making my parents proud, I'm now back at university again, also due to like your recommendation. So now you have to at least give me a student job so that I can pay my rent. And this kind of worked out. So they hired me as a working student there in the beginning. And for me, that was like really amazing time back then. Only a few people working there and seeing like the whole company grow and having a real impact. So basically the opposite of what I've experienced before. And I was lucky enough that I had the chance to grow with the company and then continue leading the general innovation cluster with a lot of teams, seeing a lot of different customers working in different fields. So I think that was a uh, really incredible time and looking back on that with a very big smile. And I think you also stayed with Moshe's for quite some time, right? And also like changed a few positions and it was directly after Moshe's when you decided to found Kertos, right? Not exactly. There was one step in between. So after Moshe's, we founded Itaro, which was a software development company. And basically then we, from Itaro, we went on to Kertos. Can you maybe also like elaborate a bit on, on how you came up with the idea of Kertos or maybe on even one step back, when did you decide that you want to found a company, like when it was Aitaro in first case and then, then Kertos? I figured out that I want to found a company due to the time at Manager More, when you see everyone else you founding companies. I actually did that as well. just did it as a side business, an e-commerce company, but obviously always wanted to like start a bigger company that I could live from. So the wish was there for quite some time already. However, what was missing was the idea. So back at that time, my co-founders and I sat together mostly on Saturdays and brainstorming on ideas, like trying to build prototype int having interviews, but we kind of failed to like really make a big step forward. And we thought that the reason is because because we don't have too much focus on it. So at some point we just decided to, to quit our jobs and just to put more pressure on ourselves to move forward into that direction. And basically we sent our termination contract on the Friday, I think it was even Friday 13th in 2019. And that was, I, I remember that day because like that was the Friday before the first lockdown ever happened in, in Germany. So that was like a high amount of insecurity and we were hesitating whether we should do it or not. But then we thought like whatever comes there will be also a new chance. So we just did it and yeah, 
figured out that it was a good decision and it really put more pressure on us. So we yeah, kind of took the next step and then founded Itaro, still having no idea on a product itself, but did the next step and yeah, so things added up to one after the other. That is really quite an amazing story. And particularly what you said about kicking things off at Itaro, I guess, sort of very soon before lockdown, it really shows that you put your money where your mouth is when you talked about taking risks and the importance of all that. And I guess to pivot the discussion about founding a little bit, we noticed that you met one of your other co-founders while working at Motius, Alex Proms, and then also Killian Schmidt separate, but did you talk about founding while you were together at Motius? How did you meet your co-founders and how did that all come together? So as you said, I met Alex at Motius previously, so that was not a big thing to meet him and connect to him. I think the interesting story is how we met Killian afterwards. So we had this software development company going on. I think it was quite successful. So we were a team of techies, like seven, eight people after like a few months, also having big corporates as clients. So everything was fine, but it was still like development service and we wanted to step out of that and want to build our own product and really like dig deeper into one certain topic. So we continued our working sessions on figuring out what are interesting spaces, what are like pain points that we would like to solve. Tried that, failed, I think three or four times. So we developed things, we presented it to potential customers. They didn't like it. We then continued to present it to business, business angels and VCs. They didn't like it either, but however, we just continued doing that. And at some point we had quite some contacts who VCs and business angels. And there was a person that recognized that there's a, a bunch of techies and product experts sitting around and he knew Killian as well. I, so to say a desperate lawyer with a good business idea, but no idea of how to put that to, to like how to bring that to life. So no technical and product experience. And he just connected us and this is how we first met Killian. So it was basically through an introduction of a friend. Yeah. Also, maybe you already explained a bit the problem of lawyers and so on, but I was just curious why compliance and why legal tech, because I think the, the space is a bit complicated and also maybe because I think you're definitely an expert in this field. Maybe you also could tell us a bit more on the current state of B2B compliance market in Europe, because I think that happens a lot there, but from the outside perspective, I think we don't understand much. Sure. Happy to do so. So first part of your question, I think was why compliance, right? So very good question. So honestly speaking, the first reaction when Killian pitched his idea, I went back to Alex and said like, no fucking way that I'll end up in data privacy. For me, data privacy was always like an innovation stopper or something boring, something that you just ignore as long as you can. And at some point there's like an old gray person coming towards you and informing you what you are doing wrong and that you have to try to work on boring things like compliance. So I said, I'm not going to work in that area, but Killian was hard and he kept pitching us and took us by the hand, so to say, and we dig deeper into the whole space. It, it took a while that we actually figured out that it like perfectly matches up. So Alex expertise in everything around data science, machine learning, my product expertise and Killian's domain expertise. And bringing that together is basically data science because personal data is spread over everywhere in the company. It's super hard to identify where they are. It's hard to access them. It's hard to compile them. So that is everything that Alex likes. I like building cool products and most of the products that we've seen or that we see, they look like 15, 20 years old Windows application. 
So there's a good sweet spot for me to bring a new product and also take, taking that chance to flip basically the, the, how you perceive compliance, not as a boring and manual process, but really think of a process that can be automated and also a product and a company that can address those needs in a more modern way. So that was our personal challenge and that is how we kicked off things. If I may continue the second part of your question, I think was like, how did this market evolve? So, yeah, especially in the recent weeks, there have been quite some announcement in new funding rounds. So DataGuard, hey Data, also DataGrail in US. So the market itself is, I think, really kicking off right now. So comparing that to a year ago when we were talking to VCs, that was kind of hidden. A lot of VCs were not aware of all the companies and about the space and the pain point. And this has tremendously changed in the previous 12 months. So I think there's a lot of things going on, especially moving away from documentation and consulting towards product-based solutions and especially also automation. Yeah, and I think what you said about people perceiving Data compliance is sort of a very scary, boring field, definitely struck a chord and it could be a common misconception, but let's talk about sort of a worst case scenario where you're doing all this manually. We, Yulia and I did some research together before this, and we came across a Gartner study that found that manual data subject requests will cost on average about 1400, which is quite a steep cost and is maybe not the cost of an old gray person coming towards you, but a little bit more urgent. But this made me wonder about the frequency of data subject requests and how often they come up. So I guess that'll be my question to you. It seems that something that can have a high cost, but what's the frequency like? Costs associated to data subject rights or requests is only a small fraction of all the costs that you have in data privacy compliance. However, they are quite visible. You have to answer to certain, these kind of requests, right? If someone wants to have their data deleted, you need to do that. You can do that manually, and then this will end up in a tremendous amount of costs. However, we personally think that the, the costs, or we can't verify these costs in the study. The partners that we're speaking to, they have costs between 300 to 500 euros per request if they do that manually. I mean, this is a process of... 12 to 15 people, mostly data owner or system owners running around manually searching for your data and then sending it to one central person to compile that or to be, to have them deleted. But in general, this like adds up to several hundred K a year, depending obviously on your business and number of customers that you're having. However, the, the amount of data subject requests is constantly increasing. And there are various factors that put more focus on that. One example would be a new requirement in the App Store. So if you want to have an iOS app in the App Store, you have to have an delete my data button, basically, which is similar as my data subject request. And so people don't only remove their iOS apps, but they remove it and want to have their data deleted. And then this is one thing that all companies have to deal with either manually or automatically. And yeah, so there's a clear tendency in more data subject requests in the future. I think as you just said, it's not only about like your product offering and how customer friendly it should be, but it's also by the regulations, right? And I think what we see in Germany is that I think, especially within Europe, Germany is, is famous for a very strict data privacy regulation. And I think also that's why we see a few compliance tools and also data privacy tools emerging in Germany. 
And I was just curious to ask you, as, as an expert in this field, do you also see the relations getting even stricter in Germany in case of privacy and data privacy issues? Mm -hmm. Maybe not even the regulation itself, but the enforcement. So I mean, like the regulations are in place for four and a half years now. What is increasing now is the enforcement. So not only having the big corporates and companies that get fined if they screw up with data privacy, but also like tickling that down to smaller, medium-sized companies. Um, I don't think that Germany is particularly strict in that field in Europe. So we see even more fines in Spain or in, even in Italy, where there has been a fine of like not replying to an access request or where a company was fined 70k. So I think Germany is one of the thought leaders in terms of regulation, but I think it's not the strictest one in terms of enforcement in, in Europe. 70k for not responding to an access request is really quite something to think about. But as we've sort of discussed earlier, and Julia mentioned, there are a lot of compliance tools popping up sort of around various parts of Europe, which makes me wonder what is Kertos's unique selling point? There are a lot of new tools popping up right now, and this is what we say or what we call the second wave of GDPR tools. So we have seen the first wave five years ago when GDPR was quite new and companies didn't really know what GDPR is. So there was a huge need of mostly consultancy and also workflow documentation. Nowadays, most of the companies are aware of GDPR and they also know what kind of obligations they have derived from GDPR. And they are aware of all the operational stress that they have derived from GDPR. So all the things that they need to do manually. So the second wave of these GDPR tools focus more on their operational support and automation. And this is exactly where we position Kertos as well. What we see here that the US, as it is very often, is like one, two steps ahead of the European market. So there are already quite some tools that try to tackle the GDPR pain points from a like automation and operational point of view. However, this market is almost untapped in Europe. So this is the sweet spot where we position ourselves as re really a privacy operating system uh, supporting everyone involved in their daily operations and not being at, next to the IT infrastructure at the sideline, consulting or documenting workflows. Also like speaking about Kertos, not only about the product and the market and its USP, but also about the journey itself of you as founders with all the hiccups and challenges. Can you think about the most rewarding and the most challenging moment around founding a company? It's hard to say, to nail it down to the most rewarding moment. I think I have a rewarding moment almost every day, which is our lunch break, not due to the fact that we are not working there, but because of the fun conversations that we have there. So it's always rewarding for me to see that we somehow put together a really cool team that is not only really productive, smart and perfect fit for this kind of use case, but also that we have a culture that is really open and just fun to sit there and talk together about everything. So that is like at least one of the most rewarding moments that I have. The hardest moments probably also are related to people within the company or also the founding team. This is a situation of high stress from various sides. So from VCs, from sales. So whenever it comes to like issues that you have with be it founding partners or be it with someone in the team, this obviously is the hardest point to like really deal with these kind of issues in a yeah perfect way, so to say. So that is obviously one thing that I'm 
can always learn from and that I'm really happy to have all of these experiences. Yeah, I really appreciate both parts of your answer, but to go back to the first one a little bit, some of the founders that Yuli and I have previously spoken about have also emphasized the importance of company culture at startups. I'm very happy to hear what you said about lunches and that moment of joy in the workday. And I'm interested to hear sort of beyond that, what kind of company culture you look to have at Kertos and maybe what that's informed by more broadly. Sure. So for me personally, it's super important that we put together a team and create an atmosphere and culture where everyone can really speak and tell whatever he or she thinks. So I think we only have that one bullet and it doesn't make any sense that someone has an opinion and we have an atmosphere where you don't yeah, feel encouraged to yeah, tell your opinion. So. That is one thing that we put a lot of emphasis on. So we have a monthly one-on-one feedback sessions where we create a space to give feedback. We have a tool, which I really like, which is called Office Wipes. So that's a weekly anonymized questionnaire where one can give feedback on the various topic, be it work-life balance, being like collaboration with manager, be it collaboration with peers, be it stress, whatever. So I think these are the key pillars to create a culture where everyone yeah, is really yeah, encouraged to express their opinion and that we can have an open discussion on any of these topics. Also, you've been like second time founder, right? So I think in, in a company, you make a lot of things for the first time, right? Even if you're a, a serial entrepreneur. And that's why we wanted to ask you, maybe looking back to, to the current students as you used to be, what advice would you have for students who think about founding their own companies, be it CDTM or Manager More or some other entrepreneurial young people? Looking back to what I mentioned it before, when I was a student, I founded a e-commerce business, which is still existing. It's rather small and I do it every now and then on my weekends, but it's only a very small thing, but it kind of encouraged me to take the next steps. And before starting that, I had so many questions in mind. How do you register a company? What kind of company type is the best for your situation? How do you set up a website? How do you manage a supply chain? All of these questions, which seem to be really big in the beginning, if you've never done it before. But due to that experience, it gave me a lot of encouragement to like take the next step and yeah, found a bigger company. So. My advice would be thinking big is amazing and great and gives you a lot of courage and, and joy probably, but it's also fine if you start with a smaller case and do your first steps and get in the mood of doing. I think that's a great point. And especially moving on to the next question. So we've talked a lot about where Kertos is and the importance of doing things methodically, but if we were to take a second to dream big, where would you like to see Kertos in the next five years? So the vision of Kertos is building a privacy operating system. So really bringing everyone together that is involved into data privacy. And that is literally everyone in the company that deals with personal data. And that is almost everyone in the company. So in five years from now, we want to see Kertos as the data privacy operating system within Europe or even beyond. So it's easy for us to scale within Europe because of the regulations that are, which are unified within the EU. But since the other privacy regulations build up on GDPR, it's also easy for us or will be easy for us to scale beyond. So that would be the dream situation. If, yeah, hopefully that will happen as well. 
Great. And of course, we wish you all the best of luck with, with your vision and also see Kertos in five years where also you imagine your, your place to be. And also moving on a bit, I think your life is, consists not only of your startup, right? Although I think the majority of, of the war, of the time you spend is definitely spent on the startup. But still, you just mentioned the e-commerce startup that you still are doing on the weekends and so on. And I think it's always curious for us to see the perspective of founders who are always busy but still we hope enjoy some free time activities. So what it is in your case, what do you enjoy to do in your free time? So I think we had it in the very beginning. And what I really like doing in my free time is going to the, to the mountains and most of the times, obviously to the Alps and just walking there and hiking up and the surrounding of these massive mountains, no matter what kind of weather is there, if there's storm, if there's rain, if there's snow, they just kind of stand there and this is something that really kind of brings me down and where I can really charge my batteries. Next to that, I really like friends having over. So whenever we have free time or an evening for us, Sarah and I, my girlfriend, we like to invite friends having them in our flat. So we have always a fridge full of beer and other kind of alcohol. So if there's anyone who wants to have a spontaneous party, we are always prepared. And that is also something that really brings me joy in life. Sounds great. Always, always to have a storage of beer in your fridge. Great. And also speaking about work-life balance, we spoke about mountains and also like maybe spending time with your girlfriend, with your friends. What other techniques do you use to come down and to find this balance at all? First of all, I wouldn't say that I'm good at it right now or in general. So I'm still working on that. So all these situations is also rather new for me. The one technique or the one setting that I'm really happy about is that I'm having a coach. So I constantly talk about these kind of topics when I see that my work-life balance is not good, then we'll have a session on that. And yeah, that's also fine if it's not good for a while, but I always need to make sure that the batteries will be charged at some point in time. And that this is not a sprint, but a marathon. And this is really something where I'm really thankful to have someone next to me that supports me in that situation and also gives me feedback. He doesn't give me hints, but he asks me smart questions so that I try to figure out on my own what the answer is. But it's, that is really, really useful. That sounds like a great point. And a life coach or a career coach sounds just massively helpful in terms of managing all the ups and downs of working. But Speaking about an aspect of work that I think a couple people our age can relate to, which is this idea of being extremely busy, not taking many breaks, and then eventually experiencing burnout. It sounds like you've been quite busy throughout your life. So my question for you would be, have you ever experienced burnout? And if you have, how did you manage it? I'm happy to answer this question with a no. I haven't experienced it so far. As you mentioned, there's always situations that are more stressful and others that are not. But in kind of like in terms of these stressful situations, at least so far, I always did things that I really liked. So that was more of a positive stress and not a negative stress. So I was luckily never in that situation where I really had real issues, not speaking even about a burnout. So I hope this stays the same. And I hope that this will be as long as I do the things that I really like to do. And I have at least a few people around me that even that either ask me smart questions or that give me feedback on like how I personally develop and if that's going into a good or bad direction. Great. Happy to hear that. And I think what we can learn from, from your answers, Jacqueline and I, is that it's definitely important to prevent burnout with maybe some yeah, uh, professional uh, help or help with your friends or just 
spending more time with nature or with your with the closest ones. And also to ask about something that we speak a lot about in CDTM, we even had had an elective on meditation and leadership. I was just curious about your your point on that. Do you see maintaining a work-life balance as a leadership topic? That you have a work-life balance yourself and you also care about the work-life balance of your employees and also encourage the whole culture around that, not, not to create the situation where people may just burn out. Yeah. So to split that into two parts, I think it's absolutely crucial for a leader to make sure that these are people that surround you don't, and that you don't put them into a position of like facing burnout or like having their work-life balance going into a wrong way. We do that also, for example, through these questionnaires, through the office wipes, where there are different questions that then again end up into a score which gives you an overview if there's a good work-life balance at the company or not. So I definitely see that as a very, very crucial aspect of every leader. I also, like, I'm sure that also a leader needs to yeah, make sure that his work-life balance is in a good shape. Otherwise, your batteries will empty at some point. However, everyone needs to know when there are stressful times where you might go a few steps like, beyond your limits, but also if there are like less stressful times where you can yeah, recharge your batteries again. I really appreciate everything you said about work-life balance and your comments on the various facets of it. And I guess to wrap things up, Yulia and I like to ask everyone at the end of the podcast, a quick lightning round of their toolbox of things. So maybe in some of your free time, you're reading books and what is a book that you think everyone should read? Good question. Let me give you two answers to that. So I think in terms of startup, not a big surprise, but Eric Riesley in startup is probably the book that I would recommend for everyone starting a startup. However, in private life, I'm not too much in this kind of romance or fantasy, so I rather tend to read science books. So I would recommend Thinking Fast and Slow from Kahneman to like know how your brain is working and, and all of these kind of insights. For whoever is interested in that, this is a big recommendation. Great. Totally agree. Next question would be, what is the app that everyone should download? Not sure if everyone should download that, but if you like to go to the mountains or like road cycling or whatever, then obviously you should download Komoot. I hope that is not a, an advertising, otherwise we need to market like that. But this is great, really a great app. Yeah, thanks for that. What is a podcast that you love listening to other than, of course, mostly awesome? That is a hard question because I'm not a person that is like listening to a lot of podcasts in a row but more or less jumping from one podcast to the other. So really hard to answer that in a precise way because I'm rather listening to specific episodes compared to like the whole podcast, except of Mostly Awesome. <laughs> but it's also an interesting answer. What is the routine that you follow? I would say like the coaching routine is one routine that gives me guidance. So we have a group coaching once a month and then we have the personal coaching whenever I need it, where we have it regularly. So that is highly appreciated. And who is an innovator that you think everyone should know? This might be a surprising answer, but I really like documentaries and everything about history. So I would say Thomas Edison, who was a great inventor. So. Everyone should know what he has done and what he has achieved and what that means for us in the future still, or in the, in the present nowadays. Great. 
Thank you so much for your answers, Johannes. It was super interesting to learn more about you, your career path, your experience founding Catals, also your view on compliance market, and of course, you maintaining work-life balance. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hoffsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.